me, Sasha. Hey, Courtney. Where can you get hot takes about ghosts, cryptids, farts, and cats? I don't know. Where? On our podcast, Spoop Hour. Oh, that's right. Each week, we talk about the things that spook us out, and we laugh through our fear. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Spoop Hour, and you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, or really anywhere else that you get your podcasts. Feel free to also drop us a line at spoophour at gmail.com. We want to hear about your ghosts. Thanks. Vienna, Austria. 1909. Sitting in what was arguably one of the most beautiful cities in the world was a humble office of a small, self-published magazine called Ostara. The periodical in question was authored by a gentleman named Jörg Lanz von Liebenfels, who, without spoiling much of anything here, could have been easily compared to the Alex Jones or David Icke of his time. If that doesn't paint a picture of Herr Lanz's interests, then I kindly suggest our listeners go buy yourselves a hat and prepare to hold the f*** onto it because this episode is gonna be a weird one. Lunds was born in Austria-Hungary, the country that existed before a certain archduke got himself assassinated and kicked off World War I. Lunds would have come of age during that time, and lucky for him, he had chosen the path of the monk and not the path of the soldier. He apparently found his life boring, which is to be expected when you're, you know, a monk, but he was fascinated with religious iconography and lore. By his accounts, Lunds experienced an epiphany after coming across the grave of one of the Knights Templar, which kicked him off on an esoteric exploration into ancient man's origins, which, at the time, was not a subject that was widely explored. Most of Lunds's studies were the works of a man named Guido von Liszt, who had tried to revive Norse paganism in the late 1800s and was himself a devotee of the Norse god Odin. You know, eye patch, beard, ravens, played by Sir Anthony Hopkins. Liszt believed that the Germans would be destined to win World War I, establish a white-dominated empire, and bring about the destruction of so-called inferior races. His prophecies did not entirely come true, and he died in 1919 after seeing Germany lose the war. But his vision of an apocalyptic scenario, or destruction on a wide scale, was only but a few years away. While Charles Darwin had put forth theories on evolution, this was not the standard across the world. There were still many gaps concerning where we, as a species, came from. In 1905, Jörg Lunds put forth an answer, and let's just say it wasn't the one anyone was expecting. His book, which has a very long German name I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce, was called in English Theozoology, or the Science of the Sodomite Aplings and the Divine Electron. Gleaning absolutely nothing from that title, it sounds more like an Alejandro Jodorowsky film or a really fun pride party. The book puts forth a, shall we say, unusual theory on the hierarchy of human civilization and intelligence. Get ready to be super uncomfortable. According to Lunds, the problem all started when Eve, you know the one from the Bible, copulated with demons and gave birth to, well, there's no polite way to say this, dark-skinned people. 
The only way to restore humankind's ancient origins was for white people to stop intermixing. Lunds expanded on this theory even further in later editions, saying that the beings known as Adam and Eve were but descendants of interstellar deities called the Theozoa, who produced offspring by transmitting electrical signals between each other, which admittedly does sound more efficient and less messy, but not as fun as the traditional way of reproduction. Their human offspring were called the Aryans, who were once endowed with supernatural powers and complete dominion over the Earth until they started interbreeding with apes, giving birth to lesser races. Now, you might be surprised to know that this book was an incredible success with the German and Scandinavian peoples, but I'm not. Scientists, rationalists, and minority advocates decried it as nothing more than absurdist racism, which it was, but it immediately promoted Lanz to a modest celebrity status. He began to publish his magazine, Ostara, named for the pagan goddess of spring, otherwise known as Easter. The tabloid became a mouthpiece for eugenics by way of a bad game of Dungeons and Dragons, with Lanz in the role of the worst dungeon master ever. It was also the official publication of the Ordo Novi Templi, or Order of the New Templars, the pseudo-cult led by Lunds and headquartered in an actual castle called Werfenstein. I can't make this stuff up. The purpose of this so-called order was to marry science and religion in order to bring back the Aryan race, and they chose their logo, the swastika, as a power symbol to harness their energy. So the next time you hear white supremacists ranting about Aryan ideals, please know that they are talking about alien white people from beyond the stars. By and large, the Austrians and Germans did not take this cult seriously at all, and it only attracted fringe followers. At first. I mean, isn't that how it always starts? But Lunds now had a captive audience, and was fond of entertaining any visitors who dropped by his office. Such was the case one hot day in August 1909, when a young, shabbily dressed man knocked on the door of Ostara. The youth was polite, eager, and very much interested in Lunds's philosophies. He asked Lunds for some back issues of Ostara, and not only did the writer oblige him, but he sent the young man along with some streetcar fare for the ride home. Only in later years would Lunds realize who he had just spoken to. Adolf Hitler. There is no universally detested group in history quite like the Nazis, and the reasons should be obvious, but here's a quick historical refresher. The Nazis were the National Socialist Party of Germany, though their name always causes a bit of confusion in sussing out their politics. They were nationalists and fascists who advocated totalitarianism and a superior Germanic state, with eyes on conquering most of the known world. They were led by Adolf Hitler and were the main antagonistic forces behind World War II. 
They also espoused a racist ideology and committed a mass genocide on Western Europe's Jewish population, among other ethnic, religious, and sexual minorities. All in all, not the people you'd want to talk to at a party. It's this latter aspect, the desire to ethnically cleanse Europe, that most of history tends to focus on. Again, for obvious reasons. But few people know the origins of the term Aryan, other than it means tall, blue-eyed, and blonde. What the history books are less likely to talk about, mostly because it's so damn weird, is that Aryanist philosophies, as well as a small amount of Nazi ideology, was driven by conspiracy theory, belief in ancient and lost races, and the occult. Which is pretty much to say, yes, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Hellboy are somewhat grounded in reality, in that there is actual documentation that the Nazis spent thousands and thousands of dollars funding both paranormal research and hunts for legendary artifacts of renown. So, where did this weirdness really begin? The Weimar Republic, of course. This was that rip-roaring time in Germany between the end of World War I and World War II, when German currency was so worthless that people found it better to use it for fire kindling, the cabarets were all the rage, and Berlin was perhaps the most progressive city in the world. It was also smack dab in the rising tide of spiritualist movements. In the wake of World War I, people all across Europe and the Americas sought to make sense of senseless death and destruction. This also meant trying to bridge the gap between the physical and metaphysical realms. Concepts such as mediums, automatic writing, spirit contact, ghost photography, psychic development, and interest in the unknown served as the foundation for occultism as we know it here in the 21st century. People from across the spectrum of faith and science, trying to better understand their universe, would meet up in salons throughout the world's most learned cities, and Berlin was no exception. Most of these groups were fairly innocent in what they practiced and studied, but not all of them. Ernst Isberner Haldain was a contemporary of Jörg Lanz and founded a society called the Svastika Circle. Lanz's publisher, Herbert Reichstein, became its director in 1925, turning it from a small cult into a think tank that became known as the Ariosophical Society. They offered courses in yoga, studying Norse runes, and, in perhaps a major instance of cognitive dissonance, the studies of the Jewish Kabbalah. They were the ones who helped solidify the mythos of Aryan lore. Like I said, worst game of D&D ever. When Hitler came to power, Lanz and his magazine, Ostara, helped to fuel the fires of anti-Semitism. He was an early advocate for calling for the extermination of the Jews and breeding Germans into a superior master race. He also wanted to replace the Christian religion with arcane, pre-Christian Germanic practices, which he deemed closer to the divine progenitors of the human race. In fact, Lunds believed that these literal white saviors might return from beyond the stars to awaken humanity to its ultimate potential, provided you were blonde-haired and blue-eyed, that is. And surprising nobody, Lunds jumped on Hitler's coattails when he rose to power. He claimed to have been the person who gave the Nazis their branding, i.e. the swastika. And technically, he kind of was. But karma bit this unusual character in the butt real good. Because if Lanz expected a seat at Hitler's banquet hall, he was in for a nasty surprise. On record, there is no definitive on whether or not Hitler really was influenced by Lanz's movements. 
In fact, Hitler banned Lanz's writings in 1938 and effectively shut down Ostara. The only aspect that historians can agree on was that Hitler did embrace the racial components of the movement, in the more pragmatic view that a race of well-bred white people was generally a good idea for the business he was trying to run. But it's doubtful Hitler sincerely believed that his Germanic empire was the end result of some weird electric sex aliens who lived on the planet thousands of years ago. Hitler branded Lanz a heretic in the eyes of the Third Reich, but Lanz did live to see the collapse of the Nazi regime. In later days, he bitterly insulted Hitler as being of the same inferior stock the tyrant claimed to want to eliminate, and merely a pretender to the throne who had stolen his ideas. Eek, petty much? So, despite what popular fiction would lead you to believe, Hitler was very much into Arianism, but not so much the occult. However, his right-hand man, Heinrich Himmler, most definitely was. And while Hitler spent his days dreaming of a grand museum in which he could showcase all the plundered treasures of the world, Himmler was working among the shadows on a grander, more spiritually destructive design. But that comes in part two. While the Ariosophists were early influencers on Nazi occultism, the inner circle of the party was a separate entity altogether, called the Thule Society. They were the brainchilds of Himmler's diverse forays into the studies of the supernatural. The Thule Society was founded by a wounded World War I veteran named Walter Nauhaus, who was already a member of a secret society based on Teutonic lineage. In 1917, after sustaining injury during the war, Nauhaus moved to Munich and met the occultist Rudolf von Sebettendorf, who himself had his own little secret gig going on. Together, they formed the Thule Society on August 18, 1918, taking the name from a mystical far-off land believed by the Greeks to house an ancient race very similar to the description of the OG Aryans. They were basically a spooky country club, in that it was a bunch of old white guys navel-gazing, and Jews and people of color were not allowed. Though historians are not in unanimous agreement, it's widely believed that Himmler was a member of this Thule Society. But if not, he was certainly a very close follower. When the Nazis came to power, Himmler delved deep into Germanic mysticism, mining the past for tools he could use to increase his party's power by, shall we say, unconventional means. Because Germany just happens to be one of those countries that's lousy with creepy old castles, Himmler and his buddies moved into the ruins of an ancient Renaissance-era castle called Wevelsburg, located north of the Rhine in Westphalia. He ordered archaeological digs on site, and much like the Order of the New Templars, designated the castle as a spiritual hub. Himmler was said to have been particularly focused on an unusual symbol embedded into the mosaic floor of the North Tower. This design was an ancient pagan icon called the Black Sun, which had previously been used by sun-worshipping cults, or so they say. Himmler established this sanctum as the headquarters for the SS's mystical operations and a potential center of the world after the completion of the Third Reich's ultimate conquest. The Black Sun, if you want to Google image up that bugger, looked like a jagged wheel inside a circle and noticeably contains elements of the swastika, though the two have entirely distinct cultural origins. Harkening back to the Tale of Two Swords episode, you may recall there's a fringe belief that the symbol of the Japanese Empire was remarkably similar and served the same dark purpose. 
a ritualistic icon that could be used to channel destructive energy. The reality, of course, was that there were no darker forces manipulating the Nazis or the Japanese Empire. These monsters were all too human. But what's perhaps just a little bit eerie about this symbol is that even today, historians are not quite sure who placed the mosaic of the Black Sun inside the castle, and for what purpose. Originally, it was believed to have been installed there by the builders of the castle in the early 1600s, but historians argue that this would have been well past the time of sun worship. It stands to reason that the Nazis placed it there during their renovations, but there are no accounts of the Black Sun in any documents or schematics. Today, its existence remains a rather creepy mystery. So what of the Aryans, the super race descended from the gods and this lost empire, Thule, that Himmler and his ilk wanted Hitler to reestablish? The Greco-Romans placed Thule, or what they called Ultima Thule, on their maps, and Thule may have been a byproduct of limited and early contact with ancient Scandinavia, specifically Norway. The Thule Society, however, believed that this was the ancestral home of the Aryans, from which the Teutonic people had descended, and they identified it as the capital of the lost empire of Hyperborea, which we'll get into a little bit later. Pythias of Massalia, which we would recognize today as Marseille, France, was a Greek adventurer and explorer who charted his journeys to the far north somewhere around 330 BC. He was interested in trading routes, specifically to see where they originated, as that northerly part of the world was largely still a mystery to the ancient Greeks. Remember in our episode on lost books, well into the 14th century, most Europeans thought the top of the world was literally a giant magnet. Pythias claimed to have journeyed to Thule, as well as ancient Britain. But not even 200 years after he'd written his accounts, Greek historians were already calling him out on his BS, mostly for his fantastical account of what he found in so-called Thule. According to the historian Polybius, Pythias had told some rather strange stories of what he'd seen in the north. He said that Thule was made of an entirely distinct matter, said to be a combination of land, sea, and air— that gave the landmass this consistency of a jellyfish, preventing sailing or travel by foot. So definitely not accurate, yet oddly, Lovecraftian. But what historians and scholars have gathered here from all this lore surrounding the land of Thule is a genuine attempt to grasp the geography of the far-flung north. Just not quite. The Greeks did rightfully believe that the sun worked, shall we say, differently in Thule, and that the name itself was derived from the Greek phraseology of where the sun goes to rest. The Greeks were told that Thule was a land of eternal summer, being so far north that existed beyond the reach of Boreas, the frigid northern wind god. From this, we get the name Hyperborea, which pertains to the greater mysterious land surrounding Thule. Up here, it was said that these lands existed in a state of eternal daylight. And while that may sound like a fairy tale at first, the Greeks weren't exactly wrong. In Scandinavia's summer months, the sun does not actually completely set, earning this phenomena the nickname Midnight Sun. Though this is largely because of the country's proximity to the Arctic Circle, for the Greeks the concept would have been almost alien, and no doubt added on to the strangeness of these mystical realms. The ancient geographer Strabo rightfully claimed that Thule was six days north of Britain by ship, and that it existed around an entirely frozen sea. 
He also debunked Pythias' wild claims that Thule was a floating land of grape jelly. Because the Greeks simply lacked the data, there wasn't much written of Thule's inhabitants, and in some tellings, Thule, identified with Hyperborea, is a lost continent analogous to Atlantis. But Strabo gives us a few hints on the Thule culture, mostly concerning their nutrition. He said that they were, by and large, a people who subsisted on fruits, grains, and, perhaps most telling of all, that they procured their alcohol from honey. Strabo is talking about mead, of course, aka honey wine, aka that tasty boozy stuff that the Vikings just loved to drink. Without a doubt, Thule was actually Norway. Still, some other writers think it might have been Iceland. So where do the Nazis come into play? Well, if anybody knows anything about the Norse peoples is that they are tall, blonde, athletic, known for conquering other cultures, and probably unlike any race the Greeks had ever encountered before. Now, of course, nowadays, the Norse people are diverse as anywhere else. Somewhere along the line, this may have translated to the Nazis as, these are the ancestral alien gods you're looking for. And yes, the Teutonic people can trace their migration back across the continent to the north, but that's just how migrations work. So how did something ostensibly anthropological spiral into all of these weird racist secret societies? For that, we have to blame a larger-than-life and absolutely fascinating woman named Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, the woman responsible for your love of tarot cards and crystals, the mother of the New Age movement. H.P. Blavatsky was born Helena Petrovna von Hahn on August 12, 1831. She was the daughter of a Russian-German aristocrat named Peter von Hahn and Helen de Fadiev, a novelist, and her privileged upbringing allowed her to travel across Russia and Europe. She was known to be somewhat of an oddball from her early days, as well as a free spirit, and Helena had a preoccupation with spirituality and religion from the get-go. This fascination was engendered thanks to her grandfather's library of occult and esoteric tomes. Supposedly, her grandfather had been a Freemason and had claimed to have met none other than the enigmatic, possibly immortal, possibly time lord, Count de Saint-Germain, alchemist extraordinaire. There are many legends surrounding Helena's spiritual powers developing at an early age, though these are apocryphal at best, and include her awakening to her psychic potential by way of killing a bully who had harassed her by a riverside. Regardless of her Jedi powers, Helena was considered to be an extraordinarily gifted child prodigy of multiple talents who had a thirst for adventure. H.P. claimed that, ever since a child, she had dreamt of a mysterious, swarthy foreigner coming to her in her dreams and acting as her spiritual guide. But these flights of fancy were not indulged for long. At 17, she impulsively married the vice-governor of the Russian province of Yerevan, a man who was almost 50 years older than her. Historians believe that this was a misguided attempt to secure financial freedom, aka the sugar daddy gambit. But it didn't exactly work out for her. Though married, H.P. exploited the loophole of the marriage having never been consummated, gross, and decided to run away to the Mediterranean on her father's dollar, like you do. Here's where things get expectedly murky. Though she was, without a doubt, a really fascinating and magnetic figure, it's hard to separate the spiritual from the factual with her. 
While staying in London for her 20th birthday, it's said that Helena finally met the corporeal form of the mysterious guide she'd been dreaming about since her youth. This psychic guide claimed to be Mahatma Moria, otherwise known as M, an initiate of a so-called higher knowledge from the Far East. He instructed her to travel to Tibet, where Helena might develop her spiritual ascendance. I'm actually surprised they haven't made an anime about her yet. In the interest of time, there is a lot of ground to cover concerning HP's globetrotting adventures and elbow rubbing with various magically inclined people from across cultures, and she is totally worth a Wikipedia freefall. But after a whole season's worth of plotlines and character development, HP ended up in Tibet and finally met up again with Master Moria, who took her to his fellow mystic, the Master Kuthumi, who lived among the ancient monasteries of Shikatse. Whew, that was a lot of words. Here is where H.P. Blavatsky learned of Buddhism, which was still somewhat of an unknown and misunderstood religion in the West. At the crux of H.P.'s Jedi training, her masters finally decided that it was time for her to get a look at the real big super special awesome secrets, namely a hitherto unknown language called Senzar. By learning this hidden tongue, HP could then decipher the sacred texts which told her of the masters of the universe, which has nothing to do with He-Man, believe it or not, and bestowed upon her psychic abilities. This included telepathy, ESP, astral projection, and just a whole arsenal worth of psionic excellence. The problem with these accounts, aside from the obvious, is that we have only HP Blavatsky's word to go on. Historians consider her time in Tibet to be highly doubtful, as if you recall that episode on Mount Everest I did and I will never bring up again, the country was closed off to foreigners during that time period. Regardless, this was the origin point for H.P. Blavatsky's philosophical movement known as Theosophy, which took America and Europe by storm. Almost every modern system of New Age belief can be traced back to this society, which if you have any sense whatsoever of self-awareness, was highly problematic in how it picked and chosen bits and pieces of various Eastern religions in order to produce a gumbo of every mystical thing you could think of. But, says Plavatsky, theosophy was the accumulated wisdom of the ages, tested and verified by generations of seers. The movement rejected the dogma of Christianity and hoped to unite both spirituality and science, as these two concepts, according to Theosophy, were once unified in the ancient days. Its basic tenets are, there exist superhumans known as the Masters, who are essentially like the Avengers of spiritualism, and that all of humankind's religions are but splinters of a greater, unified teaching that can be traced back to a more enlightened time before a civilization. Yeah, it's it's all kind of dense. But most important is what Theosophy had to say concerning evolution, which Blavatsky taught as something both spiritual as well as physical. And spoilers, it's kind of nuts. For one, Theosophy believed that the chain of evolution went from mineral to vegetable to animal to human to superhuman to spiritual master. Not even Pokemon gets it that wrong, but bear with me here, because here's where the Nazis come goose-stepping in. Now, Blavatsky herself claimed not to be an anti-Semite. She taught that all men, regardless of their background or class, were just vessels for enlightenment, and a spirituality that would transcend cultural lines. 
which all sounds nice, until you get to her theory on evolution, which basically boils down to the magical white people are going to save us, and that most indigenous people are inferior. All of this she put to paper in her seminal work called The Secret Doctrine, which postulates that humanity originates from and is part of a chain of spiritual evolution known as the Root Races. Guido von List was actually an adapter of some of Blavatsky's theories on racial evolution, and unfortunately, he took all the particularly problematic bits. Like List's doctrine, humankind originated as a first race, which were essentially spiritual gooey beings who lived in a place called the imperishable sacred land. They in turn took on a physical form as the second root race, called the Hyperboreans, who lived in the North Pole. Thule was the capital of Hyperborea, said to be the vacation home of Apollo and a place of unusual godlike beings who developed ancient powers and ended up destroying themselves because of it. Their survivors became the Lemurians, then the Atlanteans, both infamous so-called lost empires who supposedly succumbed to their own hubris and were wiped out almost overnight. And then we come to root race number five, the good old Aryans. White, blonde, great tans. As the leaders of the current race, aka all of humanity right now, they would be the ones who would lead the species into a sixth and seventh race that would experience spiritual transcendence and ascend to a higher plane of existence. Or something. Hey, it's still less crazy than Scientology. Oh great, I'm probably on a list now. H.P. Blavatsky continued to publish writings on theosophy and occultism well into her 50s. She eventually ended up in London and became acquainted with an Indian lawyer named Mohandas Gandhi. Yes, that Gandhi, who took a great interest in theosophy as it related to Hinduism. Towards the end of her life, she began to earn her fair share of deserved criticism from skeptics and rationalists alike, who called her a fraud and a charlatan. But even her most ardent critics could not deny that, well... She was crazy, but she was also a lot of fun. She was essentially an old, kooky, hippie lady. Though it is also an important reminder that H.P. Blavatsky, for all of her teachings on spiritual empowerment, was still an anti-Semitic and racist in a very paternalistic way. In other words, she was just a very complicated individual. In any case, H.P. Blavatsky passed away in 1891, the victim of an outbreak of influenza that had hit Britain hard late that winter and spring. Of her personality and wildlife, the historian Peter Washington writes, Blavatsky talked incessantly in a guttural voice, sometimes wittily and sometimes crudely. She was indifferent to sex, yet frank and open about it. Fonder of animals than of people, welcoming, unpretentious, scandalous, capricious, and rather noisy. She was also humorous, vulgar, impulsive, and warm-hearted, and didn't give a hoot for anyone or anything. But back to those crazy root races. The Aryans were said to be spiritually led by a godlike being that lived in one of the lost cities, called Shambhala, which existed below the earth and was also known as Shangri-La. I intend to do a few episodes on lost cities, so we're going to put a pin in that for now. It's worth noting that a lot of Nazi belief, as well as theosophic belief, tends to focus on the concept of there being civilizations within a hollow earth, with the entry point possibly being in Antarctica. The occultist Alexandre Saint-Yves de la Vendée, 
I think I got that right, believed in a version of this city called Agartha, which would only be accessed once humanity achieved widespread spiritual acceptance. Heinrich Himmler, incidentally, ordered an expedition to search for Shambhala, but obviously this did not come to fruition. If this all sounds like science fiction, that's possibly because modern scholars tend to think that a lot of it was actually inspired by fantastic literature, specifically a book written by British science fiction author Edward Bulwer-Lytton called The Coming Race. Published anonymously in 1871, The Coming Race was one of the earliest examples of popular sci-fi and told the story of an exploration into a hollow earth and the meeting between humans and a psychic super race called the Vril. It was an instant hit overnight, and its popularity was attributed to its detailed account of a lost civilization, the mysteries of the occult, and, at its time anyway, anonymous author. Some took it a bit too far. In a nod to Xenu, many readers were so enamored with the idea of an advanced alien civilization living within the Earth that they took to believing this at face value. One of Hitler's closest allies, until he made a beeline for England that was, was Rudolf Hess, who himself was a believer in the Vril Saga, and likewise ordered an expedition to Shambhala, believing that all of these stories of underground civilizations likely pointed to some sort of common truth. Time and again, all of these accounts of superior races and lost cultures pick at a thread that the Nazis were able to pick up and exploit. That modern man had gone astray and needed to be unified as a pure monoculture under a single banner in order to achieve a utopia, a paradise on a foundation of corpses. The Nazis capitalized on the Aryan theory, of that there was no doubt, but it was still far too radical and out there to fit into their strictly controlled narrative. Enter Hans Horbiger, who modified the root race theory just a tad, attempting to shoehorn it into general Darwinist concepts of evolution. In his version of things, the Aryans were an entirely separate species from ape-descended man, and instead came not from space gods, exactly, but by way of meteorites carrying seeds of life. This vision was very similar to the concept of panspermia, or the building blocks of life arriving on Earth by way of meteors from planets that had pre-existing organisms. Only, according to Horbiger, these microorganisms were divinely inspired, I think. Eventually, these organisms evolved into the Aryans of yore, who dwelled within fantastic civilizations. Horbiger equated Thule with Atlantis as one and the same, a technologically advanced empire. These Aryan gods were said to have directly inspired the deities of Norse mythology. For example, the hammer of the thunder god Thor, which if you're an Avengers fan you know is called Mjolnir, was said to have been a super technologically advanced weapon created by the Aryans, harnessing what Horbiger called mystical electricity. But unlike the morality tales of Plato, this Atlantis Thule of the Aryans was not destroyed because of their own weaponry, but because of a still geologically unstable planet. The collision of so-called icy moons spelled the downfall of the Aryans, who escaped to Tibet and the Himalayas, and whose legacy survived in the teachings of Buddhism and Hinduism. Perhaps to tie into the Axis alliance of Japan, Horbiger also wrote that the Aryans created Shinto as well. But what's most telling here, and what can be considered the direct link to the Nazi agenda, was that none other than Jesus Christ was of Aryan descent. He was said to have passed on his power, and the Atlantean teachings, to the Knights Templar in the form of, get this, the Holy Grail.
And this is where monstrous figures like Heinrich Himmler and Rudolf Hess come in. Both men wanted to harness the power of the Aryans to help Hitler in his conquest. Himmler, out of all three Nazi leaders, bought into this mysticism the most, going so far as to order German schools to teach Horbinger's Aryan theory of evolution instead of Darwin's. He employed astrologers, diviners, tarot card readers, and self-proclaimed psychics. So infamous was Himmler's penchant for woo-woo that the British actually took advantage of his obsession and parachuted false copies of a German astrology magazine into Berlin, with fake horoscopes prognosticating Hitler's downfall. It's very easy to mark Heinrich Himmler as a loon, which he was, but keep in mind that this was a man who convinced Hitler to exterminate 6 million Jews and other minorities in Western Europe. And not everyone agreed with Himmler and his nerd friend Hess, either. Leaders such as our old friend Martin Bormann instituted a purge of all magicians and astrologers after Hess's embarrassing defection to the UK, which is a mysterious action in and of itself that has drawn considerable historical debate. But Himmler was adamant in his occult beliefs and ordered the release of all mystics from concentration camps. Towards the mid-1940s, it became abundantly clear that a German victory would no longer be swift and decisive. More than ever, Himmler needed enchanted intervention. While Hitler was preoccupied with the creation of his world museum, as well as the continued endeavor against the Allies, Himmler delved deep into his quest for artifacts of renown. There were still two trump cards that Himmler believed would not only make the Reich immortal, but give the Fuhrer an everlasting power. These two legendary relics were none other than the artifacts brought about by the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If they truly existed, they would be considered two of the most powerful treasures on Earth. On our next episode, and the season finale, I will cover the treasure world's heaviest hitters, the Spear of Destiny, and the Holy Grail. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. If you like this episode and want to help fight the Nazis, you can leave a rating and review on iTunes so more friends can come along for the adventure. You can connect to Relic on iTunes at Lost Treasure Pod or send me an email with any corrections to LostTreasurePod at gmail.com. We also now have a Patreon with lots of tasty rewards and benefits if you want to donate a small amount to keep Relic alive and producing more content. Though our normal narrative season will come to a close with the next episode, I intend to put out specials and more roundtable talks at least once or twice a month well into the summer. That would be patreon.com slash relic. The adventure continues. In any case, H.P. Blavatsky passed away in 1981. Whoa. No, not 1981. In any case, H.P. Blavatsky. Wow.